The boxing gloves are on this weekend, which means somebody's going to get punched in the face. <laughs> Maybe you follow uh, sports enough to know there was a huge fight, a much-anticipated fight this weekend between the uh, undefeated, now 50-0 and 0, Floyd Mayweather, champion of the world, versus a young, upstart, brash Irishman by the name of Conor McGregor, who's the UFC world champion, and they had this much, you know, advertised uh, fight that happened Saturday night. Um, you don't have to know anything about boxing. You don't have to be an aficionado. You don't have to care about any of this, and I know some of you don't, but you already know exactly what was going to happen before the fight ever happened. Floyd, Floyd Mayweather, okay, the guy's 50 and 0. All right, he, he gets into the ring, and he's going to dance around a little bit. He's light on his feet. He's just kind of wait. He's going to watch, watch, you know. He's going to bob. He's going to bob. He's going to weave, a little footwork. <laughs> got that stuff going, right? Huh, huh? Wait, wait, wait. And he's got this little trick. He's got this little trick. He comes in, and he's got this little trick. He goes like this. Hey, is that a bird? And then, bam! He's just going to land one right on your jaw. Just like, blah, 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 blah. Here's a picture of him. Uh, landing a blow. He just made short work of, uh, of McGregor last night. It uh, doesn't feel very good when you get punched, but if you step into the ring with Floyd Mayweather, that's what's going to happen, okay? We are uh, in this series called Off the Beaten Path, and it's a chance for us to go uh, off of the main thoroughfares of the Bible, the places that are heavily trafficked, to some of the lesser-known people, places, and passages that are very, very important. And we're going to visit a guy in a place called Zephaniah today. He's identified as a minor prophet, but he packs a major punch. I just feel like I need to warn you, um, Zephaniah's got his gloves on. And someone's going to get punched in the face. It'll probably be you and me. Okay? That, that's, that's okay because you probably need it. So do I. Um, you know, God's Word always gives us what we need at the time. And it's not always what we want, but if you're going to preach the, what we call the whole counsel of the Bible, you don't just pick and choose what you want to hear out of it. You've you got you to do the whole thing, right? It's all or nothing. So... There are times when we are discouraged and afraid and we need encouragement and counsel and comfort. There are times when we need assurance and love and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God and that God's Word gives us all of that at those times when we need that. And today's not really one of those days. Today, Zephaniah is here just to punch you in the face. He's not here to comfort the afflicted. He's here to afflict the comfortable. He's not really so interested in patting you on the back or as he is in kicking you in the shorts. He's not going to take us and say, let's lie down by green pastures and quiet waters. He's going to grab you by the hair and put your face down in a bucket of cold water until you come up gasping for air saying, I'll do anything you want me to do, God. What do you want me to do? And I am 100% confident that many of us, maybe you, need this message today. 
as a wake-up call, a punch in the face, to really think about your life and where you've been and to get back on track with God. Maybe that's why he sent you. I know that's why he's sending Zephaniah to us. And I don't, I don't want to turn away from my sin. I don't like to deal with the fact that, I, that I've allowed evil influences in my life. I don't like to deal with the fact I've drifted and wandered from God or gotten too busy. I don't want to deal with any of that. But sometimes you don't have any choice because, boom, something just sort of forces you to shake and wake. You ever, you ever had someone who gave you a good word, but it was hard? It, was, it felt mean, even though you knew it was true and would probably help you, but you got defensive and didn't want to hear it? You know what I'm talking about? It was true and it was good. It was there, but you're just like, I'm not hearing that right now. That happens to me sometimes. The Bible talks about this a lot. I want to prep you for this. Like Romans, uh, excuse me, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Just basic wisdom out of the Old Testament. Whoever loves discipline, something that's hard but good for you, loves knowledge. That's another way of saying the Bible saying that's wise. Welcome things that maybe feel hard but help you. But he who hates correction is stupid. Can I just encourage you? Don't be stupid. Somebody gives you a hard word, even though just because it feels bad, don't be stupid and push it off. You might hear some things. You might, might get exposed to some things that, 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 that bother you, even offend you. We live in a culture where everyone loves to get offended about everything. See, when I get offended, that gives me a right to build some barrier around so I'm impenetrable to any outside information that I don't already agree with. And that means I'm done growing and learning. And so God's got something for you today, and it probably will feel a little bit like a punch in the face. Don't be stupid and sort of write it off and say, who does he think he is and who's talking and all this stuff. Can I just point something out? When Floyd Mayweather steps into the ring with you, he wants to punch you in the face so that he can hurt you. Do you understand this? He wants to hurt you. He wants to put you on the mat so you don't get up. But when God sometimes hits us with truth, it feels hard But it's not to beat us down. It's to pick us up. It's because we've already fallen away from him in some way. And he's trying to wake us so that we'll come home to him in a relationship with him. That's the only reason God gives us this kind of prophetic or harsh words. And because he also knows full well that he has given us invitations and nudges and quiet whispers. He's spoken to you in the quietness of your heart. And we just haven't listened. And so he tries other tactics sometimes. I'm not proud about it, but I remember an argument that my wife Carla and I had a while back. Um, Can we call it a discussion? Do you ever have discussions with your loved ones? Uh, We were discussing something. I don't remember what it was. But I remember at one point in the discussion, my otherwise calm and collected and long-suffering lovely wife raised her voice in an uncharacteristic way. And um, she, she said something like, you know, with great urgency, no, you got to stop doing that and do this. And then I noticed that the veins in her neck were slightly sticking out, distended, and her eyes were wide open, and she said at the end through gritted teeth, just, And being an expert at passive-aggressive communication, I just said, whoa, whoa, why why all the passion and energy here? 
And then, and then she said something like this. You don't understand. I have been patient. I have been calm. I have been waiting. I've been saying this, but you are not listening. And I felt like the only way I could get you to hear me was to raise my voice. And that hit me like one of these. And I don't want to live that way. I don't want to live that way with my wife or with my kids. I hate it that we live in a society where lots of people feel like they just can't be heard and the only way they'll ever get their voice across is to raise it and yell and protest and scream. But that's the way I am sometimes. You probably are too. Where you don't always listen so well. And we're that way with God, who's been faithfully speaking to you in ways that you've ignored. And so once in a while, God raises his voice and he comes with the delivery right to the jaw, where you can't help but sort of sit up and take notice. And that's what he wants to do today. And so my encouragement to you today is to sit up, pay attention, and think about your life. And think about who you are and who you're becoming. And to ask yourself, if nothing changes, will you end up where you and God need and want you to be? If you continue on the path you're on and nothing changes, will you be where God wants you to be? Or is it time for some changes? And if it's time for some changes, you've got to decide if you're going to actually think about it or do it because you're the only one who can. With God's help. So, Zephaniah. Prophet. This is the parts of the Bible we like to skip past. It's, it's toward the back of the New Testament. When you look at the whole Bible and the way it's laid out, it's really a collection of 66 books, right? So you've got Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, history and poetry here like this. And it comes down here. Here's the prophets. Here's the majors. And here's the minors. Down here, way right here, Zephaniah, right almost as we get ready for the New Testament. And Zephaniah is there. And when you open the book of Zephaniah, he just comes right out swinging. It's like he doesn't dance and prance much and bob and weave at all. He just comes right out, bam, swings and hits you in the jaw. And he comes out with a strong word of pronouncement of judgment. It's all this really language we don't quite know what to do with, honestly. It's, it's very ominous and scary and startling sounding. It's, it's gloom and doom and destruction and judgment. And it's coming from God and it sounds very scary and it's meant to sound that way. And we kind of expect this language and are okay with this language if it's directed toward, like, the bad guys, the people who don't walk with God, you know, the enemies of God. And there are, in fact, um, a bunch of punishments and woes and, and things that are said that are going to happen to the enemies of God, like the Assyrians and the Cushites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Philistines and, and so forth. Five surrounding countries get a real punch in the jaw here. But what should get our attention is this that most of the harshest criticism and the judgment from God is saved for the people of God because, as the saying goes, judgment must begin with the house of God. It starts with us. God is most upset at those who claim to follow him but who are not doing a very good job of it. 
In fact, you can look at verse 4 of chapter 1 as it starts in here. It says, I, this is God. He sort of sounds like he's going to war, and he's like, I'm coming after you. I will stretch out my hand against Judah, Judah's his own people, and against all who live in Jerusalem, the holy city. I will destroy every remnant of Baal worship in this place, the very names of the adulterous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host. In other words, they were kind of worshiping God a little bit, but they had invited in some of this other like astrology and planet worship and all this other stuff up on the roof like that. Those who bow down and swear by the Lord on the one hand, but who also swear by Moloch, which was like a pagan god. It was a terrible cult. They did child sacrifice. And so God's people are kind of trying to run in both worlds a little bit. Those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of Him. You don't seek me. You don't pray. You live your life as if I'm just, I don't exist. You're apparently too busy. And so there's this whole flurry of loud, thunderous voice of God pronouncing all this doom and gloom judgment. And then all of a sudden, it just stops on a dime. And in verse 7, it just says this. So be silent before the sovereign Lord. Be silent. Before the sovereign Lord. And sometimes it's okay for us to do that. Can we just be silent? Before the sovereign Lord. Habakkuk says the same thing. He says, When the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth just keep silence before him. When Job was yakking and arguing and yelling at the end of that whole book, when he has a, a meeting with the real God, he just puts his hand over his mouth. Friends, there are times to sing and to shout and to praise and to laugh and celebrate in God's presence in loud, raucous fashion. The Bible's filled with that. There's a time just to be quiet before a sovereign Lord. You ever had a kid you were trying to get something across to, but they were so resistant and disrespectful and yeah, they just kept arguing and chatting with you and you finally just had to say, shh, 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 shh. Shh. close your mouth and listen to me for a second. That's what God's doing here. Translated accurately, it's words my mom didn't want us saying in our house. Shut up and listen for a moment. Sorry if that offends you. Isn't it true, though, when our mouths go shut, it's a little more possible for our ears and our hearts to go open a little bit, just in a respectful presence of a sovereign Lord. So, kind of got our attention, hit us upside the jaw, and then silence. What's God so upset about? Well, there's a few things, and you'll see that just as he was upset in those days, every one of them rings kind of true. We have to sit up and take note. You can look, for example, at verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9. They're going after other gods. He talks about the day of the Lord, and God says, On that day I will punish those who avoid stepping on the threshold... Those who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. Violence and deceit, the way we treat life all around us. And deceit, everything from white lies to gross 
untruths and those who avoid stepping on the threshold. What's that? Well, pagan nations had these little, uh, had lots of idols, little deities they believed in. They would have little shrines. In fact, this is still true in many parts of the world. I've traveled and seen it. You have a little shrine in the corner of your house and all, as many deities that will cover all the things that you need in life, one for you know, fertility, one for good health and crops, whatever, all these little deities, and they just pray to them about whatever. And they believed that the deities resided in the threshold of the house, that little entrance part, right, the doorway between inside and outside. And so the way you didn't disturb the deities was you would step over the threshold. So every time all the pagan nations, they would come in and out of their houses, that's what they would do. They'd be talking. It's like, oh, don't step on the gods. And they would do this. And so here are God's people now, the people for whom God had said the number one commandment, number one of all of them, have no other gods before me. Put me first in your life. Let's have you and me in an exclusive relationship. They're like, sure, God, no problem. And they're stepping over the threshold just like everybody else, in and out of their house with all the little shrines and deities. And God's like, that's idolatry. You don't get it. And friends, anytime we flirt with other gods, anytime we substitute something as our first love, the thing you actually care about in life, that is an idol. The things that we would be willing to sacrifice for are our gods. And it could be money. The thing we love the most, it could be family. It could be our work. It could be success. It could be your comfort and security. Wherever you run to for your ultimate Comfort or safety is your God. And God says, no other gods before me. And this is why he's giving a wake-up call to say, you're pulling yourself away from the very life-giving nature of our relationship by trusting in a God that will let you down. It's idolatry. The other thing that they were doing that really upsets God is they were mimicking the behaviors of all the surrounding godless nations. They were pretty much living like everybody else. And this is a huge problem for us today, I believe, in the American Christian church. God says, you be holy because I'm holy. Go live a good life because of who I am. And Christians, man, our name, Christian, means little Christ. We're supposed to look like Jesus. The sad truth is, my friends, that nationwide the data reveals that Christian people who say they're Christians in America today, we don't look much different than anybody else. We got all the same stuff. We got just as much divorce. We got just as much addiction. We got just as much abuse. We got just as much. Does that sound right to you? My prayer is that somehow there would be some people at Mountain who would be so sort of tuned into God that instead of just saying, well, I'm different because I go to church on Sunday, you'd realize that's not a religious box God's hoping you check off. Instead, what he's hoping is that we would be actually changed from the inside out to, so we start to look, feel, act, behave, and be like Jesus, that's the goal, like real change, and God says, I don't see it. Some of the judgment comes because they pursued other gods. Is there anything looming large in your life, larger than God? He's upset because they're behaving in the same ways that everyone else around them is Are you living in a way that would draw anyone to think there's something different because of the way you live and go about your days? 
But you know, the thing that is the most grievous to God, as you see in this book of Zephaniah, the thing that disturbs God the most, you know what it is? Complacency. It's indifference. Relegating God to a kind of irrelevant status off on the side where he's not that important. Because I don't really have that much time for him. You ever heard that question, hey, which is worse, ignorance or apathy? And the question com- and the answer comes back, I don't know, I don't care. Apathy and indifference is a horrific thing. Helen Keller once said, science may have found a cure for most evils, but it has found no remedy for the worst of them all, and that is the apathy of human beings. When we just don't care about each other or God, that's the emptying of the human soul. Elie Wiesel, um, noted Jewish political activist and Holocaust survivor, said something similar. He said, the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. It's when you just ignore someone as if they weren't even there. And God says, if you look at verse 12, At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and here's what I'm looking for. I'm going to punish those who are complacent, those who are indifferent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing. He he won't do anything. Don't worry about God. He won't do anything. You know, God's okay. You just just want a little bit of him in your life. Let's not get carried away. Let's not have too much of him. Let's not, um, you know, be all radical about it. Just keep God in, in his little place. I've shared in the past uh, a poem with you, and I'd like to share it with you now again. It goes like this. It's by Wilbur Reese. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal like a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want to be happy. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not new birth. I want a pound of the eternal. And can you put it in the paper sack for me? I'd like to buy three pounds Three dollars worth of God. The indifference brings God to say, hush up, enough. And he keeps speaking about the day of the Lord, when everything's going to kind of come to a focal moment, like a day of reckoning. It's mentioned like 19 times in here. It's a big point of the whole chapter. The day of the Lord. Well, what is the day of the Lord? Let me tell you. The verses when he describes the day of the Lord will scare you to death. It's, It's just like... I mean, I can't think of a a worse string of adjectives. Listen to this. The day of the Lord's coming when all this stuff that you're doing and not doing is going to come and and bite you, and here it is. Verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, and it's coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty warrior shouts his battle cry. The mighty warrior is God. 
The day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, trouble, ruin, darkness, gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. It gets worse. Their blood will be poured out like dust, their entrails like dung, neither their silver nor their gold will help them or be able to save them. And on the day of the Lord's wrath and the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed. Oh, my goodness. Somebody's pretty serious about this. And I think what we can take away from it is, is, is this, that God is patient and kind. And he'll put up with a lot for a time. But then his thundering voice will come booming through our false self-security, and we will deal with him in a day of reckoning and our indifference will no longer be tolerated. And it will no longer work to treat him like a side dish because he will impose himself and force himself to be reckoned with. You know what a side, you know, like when I, I used to live in Tennessee, you had to go out and get barbecue. They give you a plate of barbecue. It's like then you get some beans with that and some fries. It's awesome. And they want, you want coleslaw in a little bit? Oh, sure, whatever. Give it a little coleslaw off on the side. You know, you may or may not get to it because you got, you got the good stuff, the main, the main dish, right? God says, stop treating me like a little side dish of coleslaw that you can take or leave and it doesn't really matter to your main life. Enough pushing me to the fringe and tossing me in the closet like a doll when you're done with me. You've treated me casually. You've treated me flippantly. You've treated me disrespectfully. You've been disobedient and thought it didn't matter. You abused my name, you took it in vain, and thought I didn't notice or care. You ignore my word, you've gone soft on my commands. You've reduced loyalty to me to a one hour a week spectator sport so you could check a religious box and think somehow now I'm supposed to owe you something. I have loved you and told you to love your neighbor, but you mirror the same divisiveness in your heart that is all over the world. You have replaced my affections and love with cheap substitutes, going after all kinds of false gods, caring more for your temporary pleasures than the everlasting love I've ever promised to you. You've made idols out of almost every good gift I've ever given to you. And when I've spoken to you repeatedly and gently and softly, you've been deaf. And overall, when I look at how you actually live, I have to convince myself by just looking at the truth, and that is that you are complacent, you are largely indifferent, apathetic, lazy, and self-centered. You are consumed, and you have put me on a shelf. And today, I draw the line. That's the message from God. You can trifle with God. You can mess with God. You can ignore God, abuse God. You can treat him like trash if you want to, and a lot of people do. You can mock God and laugh at God. Lots of people do for a while. But there is a day coming when God says, mark my word, I will say enough. And that's when everyone gets reminded he is there, he is real, he's in charge, He's the one with whom we have to do. And he will not be mocked. He is a jealous God who desires a deep relationship with you. So don't, as John Wesley says, be laid asleep and forget who God is. Because while we may be indifferent and apathetic, he is not. He cares about you and his world. And he's not just checked out. Don't misread God's impatient, his patience and toleration of things as weakness 
or apathy. Our presumptuous lives will find us out and we will meet God. Are you ready for that? (sighs) Wow. Can I point something important out? That when you see things about judgment from God or punishment from God in the Bible. Some people, they just pick up, this is their favorite part of the Bible because they think somehow it helps God if we just accent this page and ignore the rest. So they love to scare people and talk about judgment and damnation all the time. Some of you might have grown up in a church where this was the daily fare. Can I remind us of something important here? I'm going to use three big words and you can handle it. God's judgment is never retributive or punitive. It's always redemptive. Can I say that again? God's judgment or punishment for us, it's never retributive or punitive. It's always redemptive. Retributive means um, I'm going to get back at you. God doesn't want to get back at us. He wants to get us back to him. It's not punitive. Punitive means I'm going to beat you down and punish you and make you pay. No, no, no. God, it's redemptive because he wants to bring us back and lift us up to him. That's the whole and only purpose. It's not an end in itself. None of this judgment scary talk is an end in itself because God's just having a bad day like some venting parent who loses it. No. It's a means to a better end. And all of this, you see, is meant, in essence, to scare us straight, to get us to the Lord before any of it, before the day of the Lord ever happens. This was Jesus' message exactly. It's why God sent Jesus. And Jesus' first words out of the gate were, repent, turn to God. He brought this very harsh message again. And the point isn't that, see, all of this judgment is is inevitable. No. The point is, if you don't change, it is inevitable. But you can turn your heart to God, and then none of it happens. And in that moment, God says, what I really want, and you flip, there's only three pages to Zephaniah. You flip to page three, and you realize the real, the real depth of God's heart comes out. The same God who's shouting all these judgments says, what I really want is for my mercy to overpower my wrath. Will you turn to me? Let's have, and God's grace always overshadows our sin. And so, you know, people sometimes, they say things like, man, I just hope we can get back to Jesus. You know, this Old Testament God, he's kind of a crank. Let's get back to Jesus because he's all soft and lovey-dovey. He's like, you ever listen to Jesus? You ever read him? I mean, he came as a judge. He came saying, The kingdom of God is at hand. Get with God. He said the same things about the end is coming. He went into the temple and cleansed it and threw the tables and and cleaned it up. He criticized the hypocrisy of all the religious people who said one things with their lips but didn't live with God. You know, Jesus, Jesus was no tame lion and made it clear we will stand before him as judge. And here's the knock your head off amazing truth about Jesus. The shocking thing is this, that although he is the judge, he steps between us and the judgment that we have coming to us. All that doom and gloom, the day of the Lord, is coming for you and me because of our sin. We are guilty of everything they were. And yet, before the day of the Lord comes, Jesus steps in, and when he goes to the cross, he takes all the judgment onto himself. And in fact, 
Zephaniah said, when, that, when the day of the Lord comes, the earth will shake. When Jesus went to the cross, the earth shook, just as Zephaniah said it would. And so the prophet, even in Zephaniah's time, looked forward to the day when the truest colors of God and his people would come out because they had turned back to him and they were together. In fact, listen to what he says. Here's how he describes what he wants it to be and how it's going to be. The same God who is yelling with his neck veins popping a moment ago now says in verse 14, Sing, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. The Lord has taken away your punishment. The Lord has turned back your enemy. The Lord was your enemy a minute ago, and now he's turned back your enemies. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you, and never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear. Do not let your hands hang limp. You don't have to walk around like this. Oh, we're all screwed. We're going to get beat up by God in the end. No. No. That's not the message. I know that's what some people preach. It's not true. The Lord, your God, is with you, the mighty warrior. The warrior is on your side. And then look at this. Look at this. He says, God will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will, listen, rejoice over you with singing. There's no more tender picture of God's love for us in all of the Bible, I don't believe, than him holding you like a little child on his lap, stroking your hair, singing a love song over you. This same God who said, I'm going to wipe you all away if you don't come around, reveals his true colors Because when we do, he welcomes us back and sings a song of delight over you. That's what we want, isn't it? That's what we need. It's what we're made for. How do we get it? Let's say, I I would rather have God's love and singing delight over me than his judgment, wrath, and condemnation. Okay, good question. How do I get it? Zephaniah says it's easy. It's the same thing Jesus said when he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. You humble yourself. Look at, look at chapter 2, verse 3. So after all this stuff that could happen, here's the word, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land. Are you one of the humble before God? Seek righteousness and seek humility that you may be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. Just be humble enough to be like that guy who hung on the cross next to Jesus. He was a criminal and a thief and hung there, and he just cried out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's all any of us can do is say, Jesus, would you consider me? Humble yourself. Lower yourself before God. The Bible has a beautiful word for this. It's called repent. Sounds like a big, fancy, hard word, but really all the word repent means is to turn to change somehow. It doesn't mean to be sorry and feel something. It means you're going to make a change. God says to go this way, and you're going this way. You can argue with him and try to get him to come over to your way, but you won't win that argument. Repent means you go God's way. You probably know some areas in your life right now where you need to turn and change away from a way that's displeasing to God to a way that will sync you up in relationship with him. Repent. Turn. Change. That's how you end up in a different place than where you are now. There's an old story that is still, I think, powerfully fresh. 
about a captain of a big ship that was sailing in the dark of night, and he saw a light, and he could tell they were on a collision course. And so he sent a message through his, singleman, his signalman right away to the, to the light, alter your course 10 degrees to the south. And a message came back right away that said, alter your course 10 degrees to the north. Well, this kind of ticked him off. He didn't like to have his commands ignored, so he sent a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees to the south. I am a captain. And he got an answer back right away. Alter your course 10 degrees to the north. I am seaman third class Jones. Immediately he sent a third message wanting to put some fear into them, and he said, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. And the message came back right away, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am the lighthouse. <laughs> some of us are probably in some kind of argument with God that you're not going to win about what's right and how your life will work best. And the best thing you can do is alter your course. Change. On the very first day of the church, when it was just beginning, one of Jesus' friends, Peter, stood up and he told them all about Jesus, how he had lived, died, rose again. He told them all about his love, and he told them about the lighthouse that Jesus is. And they were so moved. The Bible says in Acts 2.37, when they heard this, the Bible says, they were cut to the heart. Do you ever let yourself just get cut to the heart by Jesus? They said to him, what should we do? You ever let yourself get in that place where you will actually say to God, what do you want me to do? I will do what you want me to do. They didn't want to just hear a sermon and go see what's for lunch. God, what do you want me to do? And the answer that Peter gave them then is the answer that God has for you today. Repent. Turn, change, move toward God. Turn away from stuff that's away from God. Turn toward God. I can't make it any simpler than that. You probably know exactly the ways. And be baptized, every one of you. Every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And the next verse goes on to say, this isn't a promise for a bunch of old people in the Bible times. This is for their kids and their kids and their kids and all the generations, including you right now today in this very moment. God has come here with Zephaniah's message. He's punched us in the jaw. He's told us to be quiet. He's requited us with his love. He wants to sing over us. And the, answer, the question is, will you turn? And you notice the part about baptism. Uh, some of you have not been baptized. It's just a step of obedience and humility in seeking the Lord. Jesus commands it. He did it. By the way, this weekend, today at 1 o'clock, we have a solar-heated pool out in the parking lot. And if you believe Jesus is God's son and you want him in your life and you've not been baptized, you're ready and you should. And you should meet me there today and we'll get started on that as a way of you showing you're ready to walk with God. Turn. Turn. Let's pray. God, we, we welcome your word even when it's hard. 
And we know that we need sometimes your fist to the face in a time of crisis to wake us up, to take urgent action. I pray that every soul listening to me today will turn from sin to you. Thank you for Jesus who removes us from the fear of all judgment. In his name we pray, amen.